God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For over 30 years, Hamlet Cigars was known for some rather creative advertising. They had one theme that ran through their message for over 30 years, namely, life goes wrong, um, and there's this poor soul that demonstrates this time and time again, and thus he resigns himself to um, the reality of things that are. And one ad, for instance, um, he's in a photo booth, and he's poised for his photo to flash, and every time he breaks his posture is when the photo is taken, and he gets a strip of rather unflattering, you know, images that he's done in this photo booth. In another ad, he's riding through the countryside in this sidecar of a motorcycle, and it comes unhitched, and off he goes down a road and into a river. Every time, no matter what he does, he always fails. And at the end of the ad, he just resigns himself to the reality of the things that are and lights up a cigar, and then they, they cue the, the ad and their tagline for 30 years. Happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. And that was how the ad would always end, promoting that, of course. Um, they, they found this creative way, really, um, to find something that we know is true, that we want happiness, and yet it's fleeting, and things don't always go the way we anticipate. They're not the only advertiser to do this. In more recent years, Dove Chocolate, right, has had these moments, right? If you just kind of tune everything out, you can have this moment of reprieve where you have happiness with dark chocolate or milk chocolate or whatever you choose. Kit Kat's done this. Take a break, right? Um, just, just tune it all out for a minute. Run away from it and go have a piece of chocolate, right? There's this idea that we can't escape these things. Um, so have this aroma, have this treat, have this whatever it is, and just enjoy it as fleeting as it may be. This theme of happiness is something that we can all connect with. We all have this universal desire to be happy. In fact, um, that great Renaissance man of old, Blaise Pascal, that philosopher, um, noted this in his own day, uh, which I'll quote. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man. We all want that connection to be happy. And in fact, um, this morning, this theme of happiness, if you will, um, is found in our first reading. Kind of an unusual place, tucked in the wisdom literature after Psalms and Proverbs in that book we know as Ecclesiastes. Um, the most famous portion of it, of course, was made famous, I believe, wasn't it, by the Beatles. There's a time for everything, and they sang through that, right? Um, uh, and, and so, I'm, I'm missing it. It's a little beyond my generation, sorry. Um, but you know where I'm going. You've, you've gone there, right? That's where everybody knows Ecclesiastes. But the point is this, um, that there's great wisdom on how we seek happiness in our own day found therein. And biblical happiness is different than what the world would say. There's actually a very realistic look at life in Ecclesiastes. Um, so I'd actually invite you, if you want to follow along on the screens with us this morning, there's three lessons, I believe. We could do, go much deeper, but we'll, we'll pull forward three um, that arise in this passage on this theme of, of what, what's the secret of happiness as Scripture looks at it. 
Um, in the beginning of this, we're picking up at the end of chapter 1 here. Um, the preacher, being king over Israel, return to him in a moment, applies his heart to seek and search out wisdom in all that is done under the sun, we read. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, a little further down, um, he tests his heart with pleasure to enjoy himself. Essentially, Ecclesiastes, and certainly this passage that we're in, is, is a quest, an investigation, if you will, of what makes one happy. What's the meaningfulness of life is essentially what he's working through. That's, the, that's his, his thesis, his, his theme that he's going to work through here. And we trip over the first time in verse 14, a phrase that you'll see a couple times in this passage, and if you read through Ecclesiastes, you see it time and time again, right? In verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. At first glance, that seems kind of like a rather fatalistic or maybe even, you know, pragmatic look at life. You know, say la vie, you just kind of throw up your shoulders. It is what it is, right? Um, but that word vanity there, as it's translated, truly means a breath or a breeze. It's a wisp, something we can't hold on to. It's, it's like a puff of wind trying to stick it in your pocket. You, you can't grasp it or ascertain it, right? And thus in verse 15, the preacher gives us this first proverb, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Namely, um, the world has some pre-existing conditions that we can't just control. Um, we can control some finite aspects of it, sometimes our reactions to it. But at the end of the day, we, we know we're not in control. Um, we can't make crooked paths straight. We can't add to what is not there. Um, that, that's not within our purview. Um, and so really what the first secret to happiness that the preacher of Ecclesiastes leaves us with, which is a rather obvious one, is just quite simply that we are not in control. It's a recognition that we are not in control. Now, we all know that. If I asked you, do you really think that you're in control of every aspect of your life? You'd say, well, no. But when we wake up in the morning, we, we do things as though we think we're in control until something blindsides us to remind us of the other way, right? Whether it's COVID or some economic setback, um, if you ever just need the reminder you're not in control, Father Greg will gladly have you out at the airport um, he'll tell you that the moment you step into his world, you're reminded you've got no control. Nothing is on your timeline. Sometimes you might eat, sometimes you might not. Sometimes you might think you're leaving and no, you're not. Um, you know, there's just a constant reminder that you surrender all sense, false sense of control the moment you enter his world. So I'm, I'm sure he'd gladly have you out if you ever need that reminder in the course of your week. But we go through life thinking as though it's different. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us that this isn't a fatalistic view, but if we can get it in our minds, not just even a recognition that we're not in control, but the next step is living into that reality, is coming under the reality that the only one who can make crooked paths straight, as Isaiah says, and lay out mountains into highways, is God himself. And thus, when we bring ourselves under his caring control, we don't just find these resignations of fleeting happiness, but we find truly biblical happiness, which we know is joy, lasting. Because we're under the one who really only has control, who can only affect the outcome of things. He himself is the only one who can do that. So the precipice of this whole book kind of 
begins with this idea you're not in control. And the sooner we recognize that is helpful, the more realistically, as he'll point to later in his book, right, that we bring ourselves under the one who is control, God himself, the quicker we discover life in a very different way of living. So having set up this premise, then he goes through, as one um, biblical scholar notes, and we begin, if we look back in verse 16, um, he goes through really kind of popping bubbles, ways that we might object to say, well, I'm not in control, but I can still find happiness in, and he goes there, and he goes, no, you can't, pop, and what about that? No, you can't, pop, nope, nope, that won't work either, and he kind of goes through this litany of things so as to point this out. He actually begins in verse 16 with the noblest of pursuits, wisdom itself, searching out all wisdom and understanding, surpassing all who are in Jerusalem over me. I, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the preacher in Ecclesiastes, this king of Israel, is often seen as Solomon, the one who is the greatest mind that ever lived, the wisest man who ever had come and who would ever walk the face of the earth, that God had entrusted him a depth of knowledge and understanding that no one else could. He, chasing down all these avenues, comes to the conclusion in that proverb in verse uh, 18 that really it only leads to more vexation, more complication, more, more challenges. The more we know, the less we realize we truly know, as any expert in one tiny area of their field can tell us. I can tell you in my lane in theology, I can get you here, and then there's all the things you want to know, and I just say, I, you know, that's infinite. I'm finite, as is everyone who's gone before us. And in your field, you could say the same. Well, we know this much, can explain to you these things, but then we get into this area that, oh, you know, there's some great theories out there. Um, what Solomon wants us to see is that knowledge can't be an end unto itself. Um, so many pursue their lives, if I just have greater knowledge and understanding then, and his point is that truly won't bring you happiness either. I've been there, I've tried that, and sometimes the outcome is actually the opposite, more sorrow through the greater knowledge and understanding and the weight that we have or the things that we discover along the way, it actually doesn't bring happiness at all. So he begins there with what would be seen as the pinnacle of pursuits and says that as an end unto itself will not bring happiness. And then if we continue on in the heart of this passage in chapter 2, I mean, he rolls through anything you could imagine. What about wine? No, nope, that won't really work. Um, what about um, life for my children. Well, that really won't work. Verse 4, I'll build houses and plant vineyards. No, nope. I made gardens and parks and all fruit trees. I had pools and forests of growing trees. I brought, I had servants, people to tend to me. I gathered gold and silver. I had carnal pleasure. I mean, I withheld from my eyes nothing and none of it would bring me what I sought is the conclusion. So what is all the bubble popping for? Really, the key to it goes back to verse 3. I searched with my heart to know how to cheer my body with wine, and as we go through, till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This is the theme, actually, of Ecclesiastes. Um, what he does is he confronts us, and it's really a second lesson, um, which is going to sound counterintuitive at first. 
he confronts us first with our mortality. None of this will bring you happiness because you are not infinite. You can chase these things down. Um, you can save for tomorrow like the rich man in Jesus' parable. Build your houses and barns, and I'm going to enjoy that when I hit 67 and a half. Um, or whatever that is, right? And, and then, then I'll have true happiness. My toil and labor will produce this. And he says, no, no, that may not happen. You're, as Jesus says, we know not our days. Um, our days are numbered. All the things that we are given, that we chase as ends and means sometimes unto themselves, we may never fully enjoy. So he, he pulls forward our mortality and holds it forth to say, you know, not only are you not in control, but remember, um, son of man, remember, child of God, that you are not God. And only he is infinite. It's, it's kind of a rude wake-up call. But it's, it's a really helpful one because what he's saying is if we chase all those things down in our life, um, then, then we miss enjoying what God has given in the midst of it. If you've ever spent time, it's, it's a blessing, really. If you've ever spent time, um, one of the, the, the great trials and joys of ministry is walking with those sometimes in the hardest days of life. But when you're with someone who's got a terminal diagnosis, or you're with someone whose days are numbered every day because their job is such that they may not come home the next day, they lead life differently. They think about how they're going to enjoy what God's entrusted to them in a different way. And so really what the preacher of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, as he's identified, is trying to do is say, lead life as God's intended now, and don't just expect, you know, that tomorrow comes, and these illusions that we have days that we can somehow eke out more. Now, it all kind of comes into focus where he's headed. A final lesson in the last two uh, verses of our text this morning, if we look back to verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes did, I did not keep from them, is kind of the conclusion of this litany thing, of things that he's tucked away. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, there it is again, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's the key. Toil, reward, nothing to be gained. The the end of this whole opening of his book is to remind us of one last lesson that, uh, that is this. Life is a gift, not a gain. Life is a gift. It's not a gain. Um, a gain is something like this man in the parable of Jesus, right? That we amass things so that there's something left over that we can enjoy. We can hold these things back for ourselves. We can affect the outcomes of things so that we might enjoy them and have a gain or a benefit thereof. When we recognize that life is truly a gift, each day, each breath, the food on our table, the things we've been trusted to, um, we, we learn to lead a little bit more open-handedly toward God and certainly toward um, those around us and, and even with ourselves. So there's kind of just some great wisdom literature about when we pursue happiness, if we recognize first we're not in control, <clears throat> excuse me, it brings us to a place under the one who's in control, God himself. Um, it, it calls forth this reminder that we're finite, but God is not, and that life and all that it has are gifts from God. So all that sounds great. You may say, that I'm with you. Great reminders. That, that sounds great, Father Andrew. What do I do with that? I know we're kind of up here. Um, in the ether a bit. How do we kind of bring it down here to Monday morning at 8 a.m.? Um, there's a great practice that I've, I've enjoyed 
Uh, it comes from the Jesuits. I've mentioned it before. It's called a daily exam, and they actually used to teach it on a hand because that was all they would do when they were catechizing or instructing people in the faith in other parts of the world. I reference the Jesuits quite a bit. Um, you can either thank or blame Michelle for that. Um, I, I probably would have gone that route um, had it not been for the gift of my bride. Um, so you can thank her or blame her for that however you feel about me. Um, but the Jesuits have this great exercise. They encourage it at the end of the day. It's called a daily examine, and, and I kind of conflate it this way. But each finger represents something. The, the first thing that we are called to do, um, or that we can do as a daily exercise to keep these things before us, is, is to kind of replay the game tape of the day, or the morning, um, or the afternoon. Um, what's happened? How did I interact with people? What was my frame of mind? Um, what, what was going on? So to, to kind of look back. And then secondly, um, as we kind of replay the game footage, we, we thank God for the things that he's done, the ways that he has provided, the gifts that he has given. We, we, we kind of reframe that even in real time, midway through our day or even, um, you know, uh, at the end of our day. And then when we recognize those things we're thankful for, then we think about the things um, perhaps that we uh, did that departed from what God calls us to do as his uh, sons and daughters by virtue of our baptism, right? How did I leave things short? Where did I depart from him or depart from a love of others through him? And once we think about those sticking points, be they few or many, um, then we ask for God's forgiveness, right? Um, and perhaps we even make amends, recognizing our days are numbered, with those around us whom we might need to ask for forgiveness. And the last thing is really to make amends. What will we, what will we do tomorrow that um, will, will kind of course correct us for today? So um, if I know that when I am in a situation where I'm totally outside of control and that raises my anxiety and then it prompts me to be angry or make rash decisions, the question would be when I get blindsided at work or by a family member or something the next day, how can I act in a different way? Maybe it's rather than when I feel that welling up, my cheeks get red, um, whatever that may be, I'm going to step away for two minutes and just go say, Lord, give me grace to handle what I cannot control, and then I'll step back into it, right? Um, what is something concrete that I can do that will assist me in growth and Christ-likeness um, day after day, which is the goal? So in many ways, this little daily examine, which is not that little but is quite helpful, um, can assist us in ways whereby we keep these points before us and lead our lives under the only one who can reform us and reform the outcomes and the world around us, of course. It brings us under his gracious reign and rule. And that, uh, my friends, really is the most gracious gift we're given, that as we, we stay under him, that we find happiness, happiness that's not fleeting, not a, not a Kit Kat break or a dove chocolate moment or uh, a, a happiness called a cigar named Hamlet, um, but rather is something that's more lasting. Joy, biblical joy, is only found in the presence and under the reign and rule of God um, as bridged through Jesus Christ. So great reminders today. If we want to seek happiness, if we want to find lasting joy, we can only do that by bringing ourselves under his presence. And so may God give us that grace daily um, so that we can find and be and become the men and women that he's called us to be, and in so doing, bring others to discover that that joy that they seek truly, which is beyond fleeting moments of happiness, can be found as we model it for them in our own lives. 
May this be so by God's grace in us, always working in us more than we can ask or imagine through Jesus Christ our Lord.